This is an ABC podcast. Tim Faulkner has spent his life getting up close to Australia's native creatures, our birds, snakes and marsupials, so he can marvel at their strange magnificence. Since Tim was a child, he's been on a mission to see all 2,600 Australian native vertebrates face-to-face, even if they don't all have faces. Tim is a conservationist, and he's on a mission, he says, to save Australia's threatened wildlife and to halt the shocking extinction rate of our native animals. Tim heads up the not-for-profit Aussie Ark, a sanctuary for threatened Australian species, and he runs the Australian Reptile Park on the central coast of New South Wales. Over the last 20 years, Tim has been doing all kinds of things. He's been busy extracting venom from deadly snakes and spiders, setting up survivalist colonies of Tasmanian devils, and relocating the odd gentleman crocodile to a place where he might have a better chance of meeting with a lady crocodile. Tim has also been on a search for the long-lost Australian thylacine, a search that took him not through Tasmania, but into the highlands of West Papua. Tim has written a book about his life with Australian animals, and it's called Tim Faulkner's Aussie Ark. Hello, Tim. Hi, Richard. I want to start with the Tassie Devil. I've seen them out the window of a bus. I mean, that's not no big deal. But I saw them on, on a trip to Cradle Mountain about oh, 15 years ago or so, I think, and they were scattered all over the place. I don't think there are as many there these days. Tell me how you started working with these strange and marvellous little beasts. Well, Tasmanian devils are Dazzyurids. That means they're carnivorous marsupials. Very Australian. So I had an interest in them from a very young age. Uh, We started to work with them because at about 2003, there was mild hysteria because in 1996, the devils had been found with the disease, devil facial tumour disease, a contagious cancer, very, very uncommon amongst the the world species. So by 2003, the population is just crashing and, you know, parties get together in Tasmania, Australian mainland, zoological organisations, and said we better have an insurance population to to have an insurance policy in the case of extinction in the wild. So by 2006, the first devils arrive. Right. So you mean this is a bit like setting up a Mars colony for humans in case it the is. Earth sort of collapses into a... It is. Right. So, so you took a population of Tassie devils, and where did you bring them? So they were obviously from the wild, which meant they had to go through a very rigorous quarantine to make sure that they didn't have the disease. So little was known about it at that point. Would it jump to mainland species? Would it affect agriculture, uh, you know, or native? And so... A really strict quarantine. Fortunately, in this case, not fortunate for the devil, the disease expresses itself within three to six months and the animal's dead. They die of really torturous death of starvation, dehydration, because the the tumours around the facial region are so large and gross that they can't eat or drink. Throughout that period is when they would typically spread it. And so it's spread in in its simplest form because um, devils are uh, a very small gene pool. And the cell itself is a devil cell, a facial cell. And so when one devil bites another or, or vice versa and the cell's transferred, the, the new host doesn't recognise the cell. There's no immune response and therefore um, it contracts the disease and dies. So they were put through quarantine. After 12 months, okay, disease-free, they're brought to mainland. So they were flown up and we started with uh, nine. There were four organisations in Australia. We started with nine and that pretty quickly turned to 47 and at that point, um, you know, they're declining in the wild. And, I mean, as it stands today, 80 90% are gone. The disease is plateaued, maybe for later, but still mad panic. And so we've got this population. It is away from the disease landscape in Tasmania, and it's to prevent extinction. But we're out of space. 
and the species is really hard to breed. And behaviourally, they're losing their wild behaviours because they're in small enclosures. And so at that point, the devil's crashing. We've got numbers, but more needs to be done. So where have you brought them, though? To New South Wales? Yeah. To Barrington Tops? Yeah, well, no, initially to the Australian Reptile Park. And now we're a zoological uh, wildlife tourism organisation. Yeah. But we do things like antivenom. We do things like conservation as well as wildlife tourism. And so we're invested in this devil because a lot of species are facing extinction because of feral pests, perhaps climate change, urban sprawl, habitat destruction. But in this case, it was a disease. And the devil is a top-order predator in Tassie as an apex predator, it stands for more than just the devil. Right, it's an anchor species, in right. other words. So save right. the devil, you can save so many others, lose the devil, and you can have collapse. So we believe in that species because it's a disease. If, like a wildfire, let's say, it burns hot, it consumes its fuel. But when it goes out, there are little enclaves, you know, wet gullies, or in this case, there are populations. So uh, we invested in it, say, let's get it through it because there's so much more at stake here and it's a project that we fundamentally, believe, fundamentally believed in because of the prospective outcome and result. So you've, you've got this population, you've taken a healthy population because yep. you've quarantined them and you've brought them to New South Wales yep. and you've, you've got to breed them. How hard is it to breed them in captivity though, Tim? Yeah, and this is the stuff I love, uh, you know, is figuring animals out in this capacity <laughs> and it's not a one-size-fits-all, especially with quirky Australian species. So we're, you know, they're an hour north of Sydney, the Reptile Park, and we are breeding them in traditional-sized enclosures. But if you put a male and female together... They don't get along. They don't? They don't. Not right. in a small space, right? They're solitary animals. They have a lot of communication in the wild. They, they all go to the toilet in a latrine, and that's a communication highway without having an altercation or incident. Hang on, they have a mass latrine they all go to? Absolutely. Overlapping really? territories. Yep, and it's a way of knowing, you know, what Barney or Shell's doing next door without <laughs> one of them biting your head off, right. you know? So when you put two together, they, even the males, they're Wolf-headed. They're lovely, right? And people think devils are these bloodsuckers. They're actually really shy, timid. Male devils are just buffheads. And so the female's in estrus. She's a bit highly strung. She needs her maternal site. She's gathering a nesting material. You know, biologically, she's got these things happening. And even after they've mated, you've still got this buff-headed male that keeps knocking on the door, and she's got a birth for a 24-hour period, right. right, in a bit of a trance. Now, disrupt her through that, game over. Right. And what he do doesn't you think care. he does? He doesn't care about that. He doesn't know right. about that. Right. So, but also <laughs> in those traditional-sized enclosures, we were losing wild behavioural traits really quickly. So they were behaving more like Staffordshire Terriers than a wild devil, i.e. Um, becoming diurnal, losing the fear of humans, becoming confrontational, aggressive, and so on. Furthermore, because you've got to keep one devil per enclosure, it's very expensive, and that's not good for the longevity of any conservation initiative. And that was the point at which I'm in having this discussion with John Weigel, my, the Reptile Park owner-founder, his wonderful wife, Robin, um, my boss and mentor and friend. And we're having this discussion, and John says, it was profound, big thinker, you know. He says, well, Tim, sounds to me like you've got big problems. We need more devils. We need them to behave like wild devils. We need it to be more cost-effective, but it's not working. He says, I understand... They're difficult at the reptile park in these smallish enclosures, but somewhere between the size of these enclosures and Tasmania, they will breed and we can manage groups of them and they'll behave like wild devils and it'll be more cost efficient. That was the birth of Devil Ark where we went in search of land. So you're looking, looking for land that's a lot like Tasmania but can't be in Tasmania because they Bang. risk getting infected by the, the facial disease. Yep. So where did you find this land in Barrington Tops there? Well, we went out in the Land magazine or newspaper 
And it was overwhelming, the support, you know, of, uh, of, of, of rural communities to donate land. Anyway, we landed on a spot in the Barrington Tops, four hours north of Sydney, 200 k's as the crow flies. It's wonderful. It's a phenomenal place because on the eastern side, you're at sea level, you've got subtropical rainforest and bowerbirds and pythons and 20 minutes later as you drive, you're in subalpine snow country. Yeah, just radi- only place in Australia like that. But you get up into that high country, you know, between 11 and 1,400 metres above sea level. If someone blindfolded you and, you know, clicked their fingers, you wouldn't know you weren't in Tasmania. It looks like that. So it was spectacular. Right. Alpine, forested, nice and cold. Correct. That's what they like. Lots of grasslands, eucalypt right. forests, cold. Right. And so once you've got them in, on that land, do you have to then fence that land to stop other yeah. animals coming in? Uh, is that what you have to do then? Right? We, we, we did, and for a number of reasons. The fences, and I'll just pause on fences there. Fences for everyone bring up a connotation of captivity. But Tasmania has a big fence around it. It's called the ocean. Mm. When you look at an island, people don't see a fence, but the ocean is a fence, and it stops the spread of disease, fire, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's pests. all kinds of natural barriers in right? the world anyway. The Murray River is yeah. a fence. Yeah, you know, the I mountain range is a fence. Correct. You know? yeah, yeah. So... So in that case, yes, we had to fence the devils in uh, so they didn't escape. But also, feral pests in Australia are a big issue. We've been isolated from the rest of the world for all of history, devils included, and big brain placental mammals like the fox, cat, wild dogs, etc., present big problems. So we had to protect the devils from ferals at the same time as not let the devils escape. To start with, we had... Uh, an overarching sanctuary of 500 hectares, but we subdivided parts of it into enclosures that were five hectare, 10 football field in size and went for groups of eight to 10 devils because that was the magic number that the geneticists like. They got along, they bred, they behaved like wild devils. And that model, which was really pioneering, um, as we discovered, didn't just work for devils, but it was hugely successful for devils. Okay, so... What's that program at? Like, where are you at now with this program? Yep, it's um, it's a funny thing. I mean, I'm a businessman amongst other things, and I'm fundamentally results and outcome driven. And so, criteria for that might look like for Aussie Ark anyway. Have you improved or impacted upon a species trajectory? You know, a downward trajectory. You'd need to tick that box for me to want to work with that species. And secondarily, have you prevented extinction? And so. The devils fit that box. The catch for us is they didn't go extinct. So what kind of happened? It's like that Jurassic Park line that life will find a way, you know. Um, The devils, 80 90% are gone. It's not a pretty picture. There are a whole range of stochastic effects. Like, you know, if you've only got six devils remaining in an area and the two mature females get run over by a car, well, there's your population gone. We're opposed to having 6,000 different different things. So it's, it's not, they're not out of the woods yet, but... We would have been far more needed if the devil went extinct. Thankfully, it didn't. So our role has been to send a limited number of devils back to Tassie for augmentation or release to islands or different bits and pieces like that. But fundamentally, our role was an insurance population, and we maintain that to this day. I think, don't quote me, but there's about 50 million that's gone into Tasmanian devil research, vaccines, cures, and to this day, there still isn't one. The textbooks are fatter. We do a lot of this in Australia. We, we, we've got a lot of really well understood extinct species, you know, and so applied science is key. But at this point, we still function as an insurance population. We're genetically representative of the wild population because who knows what happens tomorrow? 
Well, what's the long-term goal with this then, Tim? I mean, you... To keep the wild, to keep the devil in the wild in Tasmania. Yeah, so that's, this is the thing that will take place over decades then, isn't Correct. it? Correct, correct. Right. And look, we're really happy in the case... The other species, it's so different because you're not fighting disease. You're saving a species from extinction. But in this case, small pockets of devils exist. The disease is still there. There's some genetic resistance. There's a few immunities. There's, you know, but they're doing it themselves still at this point in time. It's really, really precarious still. So, so you're waiting essentially holding these populations in reserve until a cure is found for this facial well, facial tumor. I don't think a cure will be the solution because how do you go out and cure every devil? So, it, and you know, my under, my naive understanding is that diseases and things of this nature evolve about ten thousand times faster than their hosts. Yeah. So. There needs to be some level, I guess, or the romantic notion is that devils themselves are just able to compete with it and begin to live with it, somewhat similar to how we are with COVID, yeah. you know? And that's that's what's happening. There are some devils that that's have, you know, the whole population hasn't been whacked. They're, they're hanging on. We might be needed to ramp up massively to send a, you know, instead of 10 devils back to Tassie a year, a thousand, because they're declining them. But we might need to bring in new founder devils that have some resistance to the disease. The main thing is that the devil stays in the wild in Tassie because of its value there. And secondarily is that Aussie Ark is representative of its wild counterparts, that if the things go bad real quick, we're still there. There's a difference from an insurance population to, let's say, a conservation. If we went to Manning River turtles, an endangered species of turtle on the mid-north coast, um, one of our projects, so freshwater turtles amongst the most endangered on earth. And in the Manning River turtles case, yes, you've got siltation, pollution, all the rest. But the feral fox is eating all of the eggs. So the whole population is old. And you go there and you think, oh, there's still turtles, but they're all 30 to 50 years old. There's no recruitment. But in the turtles case, we can intervene, collect a small group of wild turtles, turn 20 of them to 1,000 of them, produce 300 young a year and get them back into the river. We cut the fox out. We haven't addressed all the other problems, but we've addressed the major problem. You can't just do that with devils. So an insurance population in this case was the motivation and the, the key cause. During the course of your work in with wildlife, native species in Australia, you're dealing with spiders, snakes, reptiles, birds, um, uh, yep. devils, uh, marsupials, that sort of thing. Where did all this begin for you, Tim? How old were you when you started going, I'm absolutely entranced and fascinated by Australian wildlife? I don't think I realised it until early 20s. However, at the age of 14 and a half, I was already working at Featherdale in Western Sydney. I think it goes back, and it's a very interesting thing. You know, my, my dad, at the age of eight, was shooting ducks for f- food with his family, you know, with a shotgun, eight years old. My, my, extend, my, my, my dad's side of the family... Um, were rabbit trappers, roo shooters. You know, they used to net rivers for Murray Cod. The, ugh, you know, how could they do? But um, back then it was, that was their interest in the natural world, you know? And you look through old photographs and they might have, a, you know, these, these photos of the activities that they did. However, at the same time, every third photo will be a kangaroo or an emu or a goanna. They had the same interest as me. And so as a young fella, my family spent a lot of time down on the Murrumbidgee and a lot of time on the coast up at Southwest Rocks and other places between. But that time in the bush, I think, for me, is what sealed it. But I believe that um, my family had a, a very a, a somewhat different but the same obsession with this beautiful Australia and spending time in it. Were you classically bringing animals home to look after, wounded animals? Yeah, yeah. You know, my dad... Um, he did that when he was young. He had little grey kangaroos that he used to rear. And, you know, when we were very young, 
um, my brother and I, just the two of us. You know, yeah, we'd have little things that we were rearing or we'd be the neighbourhood, you know, if someone's found a wattle bird that's fallen out of the nest or a currawong that's got an injured leg or a blue tongue that's had its tail run over by a car and that was, that was normal. Tell me about catching a snake for the first time, how old you were and yeah. how that went for you and your dad. People do the coolest things with their parents, right, <laughs> mum and dad. And we used to go down to the Murrumbidgee River for a couple of weeks every year. We had a, a family friend that had a farm there, big farm back then just had the place to ourselves. So we'd be on the river and we'd fish and we'd canoe. And But there'd be six or seven extended families there. That was the real deal, you know, not a, not like a, almost like a commune. But um, it was just wonderful what the kids. So anyway, one day we used to go spotlighting at night and, you know, catch turtles through the day. And But one day my brother and I, we'd been for a little fish with my dad and we're walking back probably a kilometre to, uh, to camp, a bunch of tents. And we're halfway back and there's a red-bellied black snake um, a red, red belly black snake. Yeah, so red belly black snakes, pretty, they're, they're common along East Coast Australia. Um, puppy dogs are venomous snakes, however, lethal. Puppy dogs are venomous snakes, well, yeah, but, but still a venomous snake. In yeah, fact, yeah. pretty as, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, pretty right at getting close to the top of the charts of amongst the most venomous snakes. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're, not, they're not quite in the top 10, <laughs> right. but they're up there, right. you know. But give me a taipan yep. or a red belly, I take the red belly any day. Okay. Uh, but, so we're out there and. We're walking back and there's a red belly. And I, and now, just, they're quite shy too, aren't they, most of the time? They're not like uh, brown snakes. They'll, they'll go they at are. you. But they're, they're, they're pretty the, timid. The black snakes are pretty timid, aren't unless, they? Unless they're provoked. They're provoked. Yeah. And Dad says, and I remember it to this day, I, I must have been, you know, seven years old, something like that. Around then, Dad says, you want to catch it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll never forget it. And he had no idea what he was doing either. And so all, we, all, all he had was this hessian sack and a... A thing, and so he's dancing around it, and you know it is not. What the are way. you doing? What I'm are you watching, doing? And he's like, go over there. So I run over there and wave my arms. You know, I yell a bit, even though snakes can't hear. Doesn't. And I, I think my brother was there, and so we're sort of just doing circles. And this snake, it <laughs> sorry, wasn't. A sorry, good... Tim, your dad's saying distract the snake while I yeah, try yeah, and catch you, it. You, you jump around like this, you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and it was just fun. And you know, the snake just sat there. It must have just right. thought, what are you guys? And uh, and my dad managed to sort of, you know, just grab it in a little little hessian sack, and so we, half an hour later, show all the kids, and he takes it back and lets it go, and you know, it was remarkable because that's um, that's the stuff you can't get from a book or a screen or a, and that's um, a massive part. Those experiences are a massive part of what I think shaped me. So he knew how to hold the snake. Oh, I don't right. know about that. Right, but he had an idea. <laughs> I okay, think, right. And so did you get to see it up close? Oh, yes. Look, my dad was a shift um, from probably his dad, who was really respectfully, but the only good snake um, is a dead snake. And so he would have learned to pick snakes up by picking them up and taking their head off yeah, with a shovel. Yeah. And my dad was different where um, something happened in that part where he, he'd taken that thing to, you know, they're just beautiful, you know, look at this thing. So, yeah, it was up close and dad's holding it and it's wiggling around and... Um, you know, my uncles were very interested in uh, in reptiles generally, and it was the first time I remember catching any snake. In fact, there were lots, lots since you know tree snakes and pythons, and but um, but that was the first, and I just always remember that. Do you want to catch it? Yeah, and that must have been kind of electrifying. Like seeing an animal in the wild is one thing, but seeing a really dangerous animal in the wild yeah, up close is something else too. It was, and, but you know, I remember that. But I got to tell you, I've watched my dad down there, probably a similar age for me. 
you run 300 metres across a paddock with a bull just right up him and jump up a tree, you know. I've watched my cousin get headbutted six metres by a by a, a, a ram just right in front of me, you know. I hear this boom and um, I just had the, you know, the best stuff. The right. best, they're the good bits. So this was all part of your childhood. Uh, yeah. When did you realise you wanted to spend, make a life working uh, with and for Australian wildlife? Well, remember, um, I'm born, bred 20 kilometres from where we sit in Western Sydney. So talk about that time in the bush, but make no mistake, I, I didn't grow up in the bush. I spent time in the bush. Um, Western Sydney then, you know, your areas around Blacktown, Toongabby, Greystones, where I'm from, I could still go to the local park and catch lizards. They're not there now. And, you know, go back a generation before me, you still had platypus in the Parramatta River, you know? So those baselines change. But at 14, I had to do work experience. Yeah, you know, my dad uh, and mum both worked, both had the same job, their whole life kind of thing. You know how it goes. Dad a draftsman, mum a small business manager and um, dad a business manager towards the latter years. And dad's dream was you just got to get a trade and stick at it, you know? And I did work experience at a wildlife park. I started working there on weekends shortly after and the following year, uh, which would have been year 11 at school, I was going to school, getting changed into my work clothes and going to Featherdale, you know, as the, as the story goes. And I started... Uh, when I was very early at 15. But at that point, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. The nature there was that there was this incredible group of people, this phenomenal work ethic, people I look up to. And I was a straight-A student at school, but I was middle of the range, you know, um, middle of the range. And I, I, as soon as I hit work, I just wanted to work. So I go there at 15 and the next three years, my dad's mate, this because you don't even have to be skilled to get a, you know, there's no trade, there's no... He's like, mate, so between – I stayed at Feather for nine years and then moved to Reptile Park. But between that, Dad got me a carpentry apprenticeship. I did that for three months straight back to Featherdale. Something at the Auto Electricians. I did it. went straight back to Feather. And but, by then the thought occurred to you that I perhaps I should be working with wildlife at that point. Yep. And you know what? Right. I left Featherdale really reluctantly. I think I'd been ground down that, mate, you've got to think about family, house, life. I left Featherdale to go and work for my mum as a sales rep. And the day after I resigned, I got a call from the Reptile Park. And they said, hey, I used to work at Featherdale. I know you guys are pretty um, loyal. They said, but come and give us a week. That was 20 years ago, and I'm still there. And now you're running the joint. Correct. Tell me about the little souvenir you took from the Australian Reptile ah. Park when you visited there as a little kid. Yeah. My dad's a really moral man, you know, really moral. I need to state that. But we were at the reptile park when I was a little kid and I loved animals. You know, I think at home we had like a blue-tongued lizard or a bearded dragon, a bird, and I swiped a turtle from there. So I'm in there and I'm looking over the edge of this turtle pond and there's all these baby turtles hatching. I said to my dad, look at them. Now, I've never seen this before, you know. I'm like, they need help. He's like, they don't need help, mate. I said, they do. Just let me grab one. No, they don't need any and that turned into, you know, um, lifting me over a little bit and holding me by the legs over one of these pits. And you know, Your dad dropped you in by the ankles into a turtle enclosure? By the ankles. Right. And uh, I kind of just grabbed one of these little dinosaurs, you know, and um, I don't even remember properly what happened to it, you know, if he made me let it go, if we took it back, if I took it home. But 
I never... It was the naughtiest thing I'd ever done. You swiped a baby turtle from the yeah. Australian Reptile Park. Uh, and when you went back there as a, an employee, did you did you come clean on having stolen the turtle? Oh, look, it took me... John Weigel, uh, John and Robin Weigel, uh, owner-founders, Reptile Park, and um, real parental figures to me, noting I don't have an absence of... A, my mum and dad are very prominent in my life, but really, it took me years to tell him. And, uh, you know, when John and I were, were very close then, and I mean... and. After I'd been at Reptile Park, that was the point that I knew this is what I wanted to do because I'm at this place and it does extraordinary and extra things like your conservation opportunities, like John's just this this most incredible person. And that was the point that I knew this is what I want to do with my life. And I, I moved there from Greystains. But after a few years, I told John and he loved it. He loved it because that's what makes us individual and unique and special, you know? I haven't told anyone else that at Reptile Park. <laughs> did you know you were in the right place once you started working there? I did after a few years, yep, because my parents lived in the same house in, in Greystains forever and I'd been there 25 years and I was with my, my now wife, Liz, and we had bought our first house in Greystains and it was I was driving to and from Reptile Park each day. I did it for two years and it got to the point of, um, you know, I, got to, I can't drive anymore. And we decided to, to move up there and we, we were so in love with our community and friends and family and we only rented our house out in Greystains for six months instead of 12 because we were sure we're going to come back. And the rest is history. You know, we moved to the coast and, uh, and, and here we are now. What a lifetime. Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Now, you went in search of the great lost thylacine, Mm. colloquially known as the Tasmanian tiger. But you didn't go looking for him in Tassie because I think we're all pretty well sure there are none such to be seen anymore in, in, in Tassie. Instead, you and, and a group of people went looking for thylacine in New Guinea. What led you to New Guinea looking for the thylacine? Yeah, it was wild. And Aussie Ark has a wonderful partner organisation called Rewild, formerly Global Wildlife. And they had an initiative called Lost Species. And it was to go and find some of the world's lost species very successfully in a number of cases. And one of them is the infamous thylacine. But as you eloquently captured, um, hopes of it being in Tassie are you know, vanishingly small. But there are indigenous paintings of thylacine still throughout Northern Territory and West Kimberley. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can, Tasmanian devils were on mainland Australia just 3,000 years ago. Thylacine's not too far before. And in that case, it seems, with the devil, it certainly seems the case that as dingoes arrived into Australia as a placental mammal, they moved throughout the landscape and they were too intelligent for devils. And so you saw the decline of Tassie devils. But dingoes never got to Tasmania because the land bridge filled 12,000 years ago from from Melbourne to Tassie, from uh, Victoria to Tassie, and dingoes only arrived 5,000 years ago. Yeah, they're all through probably multiple species. So then conceivably, if there were thylacines in northern New South Wales, they would have crossed the land bridge that once existed between here and New Guinea? Always were. And even you go to Nullarbor in the limestone cast caves, there's intact thylacine 
in there. You go to New Guinea, it's believed there were, I think, five to seven different species of thylacine from your coastal regions, your rainforest regions. I mean, you look at... Oh, so we know they were definitely there once. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know they were there. And if you go to people like the wonderful Professor Tim Flannery, you know, and you ask, hey, Tim, if you're looking for, for tigers, where would you go? Well, New Guinea. And it's unexplored. It's vast. I mean, you think this thing that's New Guinea and West Papua, it's closer to us than Perth in Sydney. And... When you have a look, and I encourage anyone to do this, have a look on a map at the rainforest we know, like the Daintree. Have a look how big it is, or in fact how small it is. And then compare that to New Guinea as one giant Daintree. The, the, the amount of forest there is out of this world. Uh, and obviously it's occupied um, by New Guineans and West Poplands. But when you go to the highlands of New Guinea, at the really high elevations, we're talking ten to 12,000 feet, no one lives there. It's too cold. You've got too cold. It's cold. Too alpine. Equatorial New Guinea, right. right? It's crazy. So that's that's one. Out, that, so it, this this is when we're starting to get like into West Papua rather than well, yeah, PNG, but, but, but the, somewhere the in the middle, right? That's right. So you have so, these Razorback Mountain ranges that go that high. Correct. Right. Huge, big glacial peaks, and right. Um, it's just such a profound thought because you picture. Well, we think the closer you get to the equator, the hotter it gets. You know, and there's tropics and. And then you get up on these equatorial peaks. I mean, some of them are the best examples of climate change where you've got, you know, radically deteriorating glacial caps to the point now they're almost non-existent. But it's cold and it's high and it's cloudy and it's wet and it's, um, it's, it's just a, the most remarkable place. So, so when you say when you get up there, yeah. what does getting up there mean? And for you anyway, how do you get up to such a highland? Like do you yeah. get climate or can you fly in? Uh, so... We had to fly in, but it was from Sydney to Indonesia, Indonesia to Jayapura on the north side of West Papua, from West Papua to Womana, which is a, a landlocked West Papuan city, from Womana, a light plane to a place called Holowan. Now, we got into Holowan because a wonderful fellow named Malcolm, his father was um, one of the very early missionaries through there, and Malcolm was born there. So Malcolm also knew from the old timers in the village that yeah they talk about this uh, this thing with stripes that looks like a tiger and so anyway so, so there's like folklore around around is. the thylacine yep. right and so we get to Holowan and the whole village was out the front to meet us it was, you know probably three hundred people the plane comes in the the, the runway is on a thirty degree tilt. It's just like those things what? you hit. How can a runway be on a 30-degree tilt? It is. So you come in, you land, and you're going straight uphill. And then you get up, and it's like, whoa. And then it stops, and the pain just pivots while it's still got a little bit of momentum to turn and get ready to take off again. And we jump off. We've got all the, the, you know, the, 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 the field team um, and a film crew in tow, and we get off, and the women were all just crying for Malcolm. Welcome, Malcolm, our son. You know, you're back. You've come with friends. So anyway, we jump off. But but Holland one's only at 6,000 feet. We've got to get to 10,000. So how do you get to 10,000? Helicopter. But they have real trouble flying at that. They can't fly blind, so they can't fly in cloud. And once they get up so high, the blades struggle with the altitude, and it's really precarious. So we had one chopper that had to do six runs. And the first day, it's unbelievable. The first day... The chopper picks us up at about nine, says, right, we've got a little window. So one group gets up there. I was in the first group. Three of us get off and you just, we landed. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Avatar or, you know, you know where dragons hang on the sides of cliffs. And then when they go, they just let go. We're just on the side of this cliff. 
and it's the only clear spot that he could land, a bit of bare exposed rock. And, you know, at 10,000 feet, and you're, we're almost looking down at where Holowon is. So he drops us there, and instantly there's that feeling of, whoa, the air's wet, it's dense. You, we've gone from 30 degrees to 12. So the next group, we can hear the chopper for about 15 minutes. But the cloud's rolling through and around at all times, and so the chopper's got to find this spot. So the next group comes down, um, they land. And so at that point, it's like, right, we're in, we grab bags, we've got luggage and getting them all off. And you can imagine that excitement, that feeling of just the, the, the team sort of coming together, you know. And the pilot's there and he says, I don't know how many more I can get in. But it's only been two. All our <laughs> luggage and food and everything's down. So he, uh, he sits there. I know this well because it was recorded on iPhone. He sits there for five minutes because the cloud didn't dissipate. And then he just takes off straight into this cloud. But he knew as, as we came in, the cloud was just around us on the, on the peak of the, on the, on the glacial peak, you know? And so he knew he just did this straight off into the fog and the, the plane just, or the helicopter just drops and like 300 feet below it clears. I mean, part of this is, is telling it, knowing retrospective what happened. The third chopper never comes. So anyway, that night, we got a bit of stuff. We go out. We start putting out trail cameras. You know, we um, we make the make the most of being up there, of course, and think they'll just come tomorrow. Tomorrow comes, they don't arrive. Right, no choppers. Mm-hmm. No choppers. So you're starting to get that feeling now of uh, ooh, you know. And um, we don't have with us our. We've got Malcolm. Um, you know, three Americans and one Australian. But we had Malcolm's. You know, the people from his community and his village coming with us. Yarragut and his son and anyway so in the morning there's a dog up around us like a little fox terrier thing and Malcolm says someone's here so oh, you I mean a, lo- a local person is uh, observing you from a yeah, distance right so someone's here we're like okay cool so who, who's anyway the exact events you know in a keep a long story short over the next little while were that couple of people appear, not friendly, disappear, don't come and see us. You know, some, some young men, they've got guns over their shoulders and machetes or air rifles. I don't think they were, didn't threaten us at any point, but it was scary. We've had a rough night's sleep because we're in single tents. It's cold, it's wet, it's everything else and all. We're still trying to do our thing with trail cameras and, you know, footprints and hair and all this stuff. And so uh, over the course of the next day, Yarriut, the old fellow from the village at Holowan where we were, he turns up. Like, where'd you come from? And we can't speak with him. Malcolm can. He doesn't speak English. But So they dropped him two kilometres beneath us, all three parties. But it's impossible to walk it up and down, and I don't know what the pilot was thinking. And so where that party was dropped, long story short, is we were forced there because we were filming to have a, an Indonesian Indonesian presence and, a, and, a, and an interpreter. You mean Javanese Indonesian? You correct, mean, right, correct, right. correct, correct, correct. That's right. And that person must have been a little bit unwelcome, I'm, uh, un- I'm guessing. Unwelcome, unsure, yeah. yep, especially up there in the highlands and uh, where we were in particular. And uh, they were at the first interaction because where they were dropped was a total other village, tribe, community, no knowledge. The first thing they did was said, the Indonesians said, we can be here. And it didn't go well. Right. So, so, the- so you've un- unwittingly run into... 
a point of serious political tension between the local people, correct, and the Indonesians who yeah. have uh, who have, of, of, and West Papua is part of Indonesian correct. territory, right? And, and I've become very well versed in this, but I was very naive at the time. I mean, so, what, so are you in a fair bit of danger then at that point, I given that you've alienated the uh, local people unwittingly? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Malcolm, that was there, works in law enforcement, Canada, and so I took quite a bit of comfort in that. I just watched Malcolm. Malcolm looked worried, I was worried. If Malcolm looked calm, I was calm. But yes, and, you know, later learnings on New Guinea, on West Papua, I mean, it's a, it's a very sad story up there. And again, it's closer than Perth, yeah. right next door to us. But There's a lot of I, strife going on there. There's a lot of strife. Did, 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 that mean, did that mean you had to get out, though? It, it meant we ended up pushing an EPIRB emergency evacuation button because it came to the point that we're up the top and we time goes fast and slow up there, right? So this is all happening and there's an exchange of information. There's a two-kilometre walk but a 3,000-foot um, elevation drop, so it takes a long time for a messenger to get up. Or We're getting on with trying to find... Uh, thylacine. That's right. I just remembered this point. You're actually up you there know? to get to look for thylacine. And, and I'm up there still catching right. frogs that have, may never have been seen by people. And we're talking about long-beaked echidnas and, um, you know, birds of paradise are still flying around. And we're, we're also, we're hearing singing dogs, which hadn't been seen for decades. And they're, the, you know, a, a relative of dingoes. And, but it gets to the point that we've got to go. And so, like, six young men turn up, machetes and never threatened us, but just a presence. You know, you've got to go and Yari, you're talking to Malcolm and we've got to go. And like, what do we do with all... So then, like, 50 community members from the other village turn up and port all our stuff down. So we now get down to their village and we're on this little grass area. It would be like, a imagine, a football field on the outskirt of a small town, you know? But it was just a grass area. So we're there and it's like, what do you want us to do? And they say, keep going. Where? Down there. Where? And it's just, you know, pointing to the southeast. So it got to a point, and yes, at a point, there was actually an old albino village elder, and he'd been very quiet. And look, I'm there with kids. I'm showing these kids through books. I'm showing them thylacines. You know, I had this wonderful audience of 30 or 40 um, kids and young adults around me, and we're looking at reptile books. And I, I, I didn't say this, but actually at Holloway, I had a set of cards, a giraffe, a, a porcupine, an echidna, and a thylacine to see what the reaction was. Very cliche, but... And I'm showing him this stuff, and it really escalated then with 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 the old tribal fella, and um, it got quite heated to a point that the producer said to me, "Should I push the EPIRB? I said, "I don't know. It's your decision." He said, "I can't make it. What should I, I say? Just push it, mate. Get us out of here. It's not going well." And um, a Swiss medical aid chopper came and got us some some time after, and you know we had to stay in Jayapura then for a few days, and the military presence on us because of this was. Unbelievable. Plain clothes, clothes. They never let... They woke us up at 1am each night. Who are you? Where's your passport? Uh-huh. So you went looking for a thylacine with a group of people. Yeah. And despite being in one of the most remote and sparsely populated places on the face of the earth, you kind yep. of walked accidentally into this major political fracture. Correct. Between local people yep. and the yep. Indonesian powers that be, so, such as they are in in, in West Papua. Yep. Were you able to do any research? I mean, what do you do? Set up cameras? Yeah. What do you do uh, in look, order to I, look for the thylacine? I, I won't tell you a pretty story. Um, it was compromised significantly. Um, you know, hearing singing dogs was about as good as it gets, knowing their presence was there, seeing their footprints. They're a very endangered species themselves. But did we nearly find a tiger? No. No way on earth do I think they could be up there. Probably not. But, crikey, it's a big area. It's a really big area and it's really unexplored. So, you know, would I like to go back there? 
You betcha. When my kids are old enough, I, I talk with Malcolm regularly that uh, we got to do a, a trip back there. Whether I go up the top for Tigers or not, I don't think I'd put my kids through that for a number of reasons. It was terrifying. Um, Still, how... Wonderful place. Wonderful, but how fraught. I mean, you're, you're there in this incredible wonderland and yeah, you yeah. can't stay. No, it's hard. Yeah, but I mean, you know, what's anything worth doing if it's not hard? And that's the nature of the beast sometimes. Uh, I mean, we're, we're still in West Papua for two weeks. I mean, the cities are built around World War II airstrips. You know, the, the, the experience itself was wonderful. And when you sign up for something like going to look for a tiger, you better be invested in the experience because you probably ain't going to find the tiger. Uh, and it, it delivered that in spades. You got that experience. <laughs> How important do you think it is for people, particularly children, to have hands-on experiences yeah, with, when I say hands-on, I don't mean like picking them up and cuddling them necessarily, yeah, yeah. but, but up-close experiences with Australian native animals. Critical. I speak that from, um, for myself, and I think I'd said that earlier, that my time, I didn't live in the bush as a kid, I spent time in it. But it's the ultimate classroom. You know, we're in an era of diminishing family activities, of nature-based activities. Uh, there are things you get from looking at and smelling a flower that you can't get from a screen or a book. It just don't work like that. And that's the same for wildlife, particularly in Australia. With respect, way too many people nowadays think a cow paddock is the bush. It ain't. It's a monotypic moonscape grass land that's not even habitable for natives of any description. So kids out there in the bush, and I mean, it's hard now because if a kid picks up a blue-tongued lizard, someone's going to tell him you've done... Put it down, you're hurting it, you're scaring it. It's Look, if the lizard's worst enemy was a human picking it up, they wouldn't exist as a species. They've got far bigger problems than a five-year-old kid. But how do they know things... How do they know the difference between a Tyrannosaurus rex and a Parenti or a Goanna if they only ever see them on screens? What's the difference? And why the heck would they want to grow up and protect it? So that tangible, tactile thing of, you know, get the kids dirty or get them out there. And look, I, I believe in, in what I do in, in the capacity of, of wildlife tourism. And it's a really, really sensitive area. But people come to our wildlife parks to have fun. And if they don't do that, it's the only place they see these animals. And it's our job to um, let them have fun in that experience. Because when on another day we come knocking on the door to want to save wildlife, they're the people we need to help. You know, and um, if I didn't have the experiences as I did in the bush as a kid, I wouldn't be sitting talking to you here now. That's a certainty. You know, a long while back on this program, I interviewed an American psychologist who identified something he called nature deficit disorder mm. in kids. And what he meant by that was that a lot of our language about nature at the moment in the media is based around our many and real failures yeah. with the natural world. But he said the upshot of this he's found in children is to create a kind of a general sense of shame yeah. about our failures with nature. And, and, and kids feel guilt much more readily than adults do. Yeah. And consequently, there's a shyness of being involved in nature, like because yeah. it's the site of our, our species crime, if you like, yeah. in the natural world. And he said this is, this is a terrible deprivation for children. Yeah. He said because for him, he remembers, he remembers growing up on the edge of, uh, uh, of what America, the American equivalent of the wilderness, yeah. just on the outer, outer burbs. And he said, you know, when mum and dad are fighting, you know, he could always go into, into the bush yeah. and 
that's a great place for kids because they realise in the bush and solitude there that there's something bigger than their family yeah, yeah. in the world. There's something bigger and greater than their family and there's a bigger, wider world. And you get, it's, it's the bush that gives that to you. What, do you. what do you think of that, Tim? Yeah, well, you mentioned solitude. For kids now, they would probably say, I'm bored. Good. Keep being bored. And then something will happen and express from that. Um, or terrified. Terrified, yeah, terrified yeah, in however, the bush. Yeah. But um, it's, it's just, you know, I've probably met with well over a million kids in my career and it's a big part of what I do and I proudly say that they look to us in green uniforms like we're similar to a police officer or Spider-Man or a firefighter and I, I teach my team you know lean into that because you've got a, a chance to make an impression on that little one right now in the best way they are shamed into it they just I think it wouldn't matter whether we're talking here about an animal or the way they dress, but yeah, there's a, there's a real self-consciousness around it. Animals particularly, I mean, you know, we've always known you can't go into a national park and rip a plant that you like out and take it home. Right? That stays the same, but it's, they're so bashed around. Don't touch, look, feel, stay on the path. Um, and I don't know the right way of getting them into what bush and having the experiences I did. I don't think that's as necessary as it needs to be, but for them, that solitude and that boredom, I mean, that fundamentally is creativity, right? And you get through that. We all do it when we can't use our phone with no service for two hours. At first you feel restless and then after four hours has gone, you realise, well, that restlessness was just my lack of input and now I've relaxed. And you go through a tangible sensation um, or f- range of feelings getting to that and I don't think kids do that enough. That feeling when we have peace from uh, separation from our phone, they don't get it. They have an innate desire to, when you show any two-year-old an animal, what do they want to do? Touch it. Touch it. Let them, you know, in the right context, in the right way, because without that, we're going to... I mean, the natural world's important to me, and we're asleep at the wheel fundamentally. We've got human problems, we've got climate problems, but, you know, even our own beautiful national parks, they were fought, people fought tooth and nail for them. And the problem is that they were left with a set-and-forget mentality. But they need management because what we've got is these beautiful wild places, but they're full of feral pests and our natives are disappearing. Marsupial ghost towns. Marsupial is a ecological ghost towns, mm. you know. Um, and, but kids, they're so far removed from that. I'm a, what I am a really big advocate for and I, I should express is that what I did as a kid in the bush was set baselines. I mentioned before there used to be platypus in Parramatta River. That's a baseline. There used to be eastern water dragons and bearded dragons at Toongabi. That's a baseline. Or go to an... The way that they see it now will be different when they're our age. And at least if they've got something, well, I used to see all these pretty butterflies here, or this used to be a forest, or this used to have kangaroos. That's the point of difference when they grow up to want to protect it, preserve it, and look after it. Once on a family holiday with some friends and our kids, we, I remember we went up to the mountains, and I remember watching my daughter, who's pretty addicted to screens at that point, my yeah. daughter spending an hour... With some bread, yep. approaching a kangaroo very, 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 very slowly. Yep. Just and, and what she was looking for was, I think, was that kind of intimacy, that yep. fascinating intimacy. And I could see that she felt it was a privilege yep. to be admitted into the, the, the world of the kangaroo yep. and to see it up close and maybe have that, that closeness where she could observe it closely and be in that kangaroo's world. Is, is that what you really love about white island? Is that kind of 
that intimacy we have with these these creatures that are quite alien to us and think differently, have completely different yeah. wide brains, different ways of literally literally seeing the world, smelling the world, hearing the world. Yes, but look, I'm in love with Australia as much as I am her species. And the pursuit to see every species in Australia, 2,600 of them, that's to visit 2,600 different habitats, so to speak. And so I, I love that whole pursuit. For your daughter there, the beauty is that sounds like she got close enough to look in the eyeball of a kangaroo. Mm-hmm. And the beauty with a range of species, not all, but is the kangaroo looks back at you. So do particular goannas, so do cats, you know, so do a lot of intelligent species. And that's a connection. You know, there's some, there's some consciousness there, even though that animal's not aware of what's coming tomorrow or perhaps happened yesterday. Um, but that's, that's the whole gig. Um, for me, that connection with kitties is just something that should be a part of their life, right? It's the natural world. Um, so it's like a gift you were given. Correct. And you want other kids to have it. I do. And beyond that, it's selfish because I want them to have it so that they grow up to know what they're losing or what they stand to gain if they're to to do something. And I think the world, you know, there's so many opportunities looking forward because uh, I I hated just a doom and gloom loop. Um, I I like results and I like outcomes. And so I I very briefly say that Australia has the worst mammal extinction rate on earth. We've lost more small mammals, marsupials, than any other, than all of the other countries put together, would you believe? This is the subject of a recent report that the last government had sat on for a while. Correct. It's just been brought to light. Yep, it's been brought to light. But we've got the worst mammal extinction rate. We've got the second highest rate of biodiversity loss, next only to Indonesia. A biodiversity loss is just the number of living things in any one place. And I mentioned before, but we're just asleep at the wheel. Some of it valid because we've got real human problems and we've got real climate problems, but these... These, and as cliche as it sounds, these little critters, they don't have a voice. So if kids aren't seeing them as little, they're not even going to know they disappeared. They won't even know what they lost in the first place. And just for the intrinsic good, you should be able to go into a national park, a national treasure, and see it like it was meant to be, which is how it used to be, right? It's preserved. But you go to any of our national parks around here and what you'll see at night is a rabbit, a hare, a fox, a cat a goat, a deer, um, and I could keep going on and on and on and on and on. And that's not okay. And the way I saw it as a kid has changed to how it is now, and they need to see it how it is. Your baselines change. Um, The outcomes are that there should be so many opportunities for up-and-coming kiddies in the next generations because things are getting real bad. And we seem highly motivated when things get real bad, like when we had wildfires, bushfires. The outcry was incredible. Well, our whole country's kind of like that. And that's going to present mass opportunities when the penny finally drops because huge areas of the likeness to what I do in conservation or ecology or research or applied applied science, um, massive opportunities. So, uh, you know, I encourage any kids to get... I'm sure any parent that said, hey, how'd you like to grow up and be a well-paid conservationist would say, I want it. Well, there's lots of opportunities. Tim, it's been brilliant speaking with you and thank you so much for your stories. Uh, thank you very much. Tim Faulkner's book is called Aussie Ark. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. A new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.